Okay, here we go, the return. So as we start off here, we see uh, a guardian, and uh, presumably not the same guardian we saw back in, in Blackest Night, who was voiced by René Aubergenois, since he's not in this episode. Uh, but there are dozens, if not hundreds, of guardians, and I guess it's probably safe to say this isn't the same one. In uh, in the comics, Ganthet is the, the main guardian, the only one who's really referred to by name anymore. And so perhaps if that was him and in Blackest Night, then this is a different guy. We also see the Guardian uh, seems to know quite a bit about uh, Green Lantern's personal problems, which is a little strange, since I'm not quite sure how he would have found out about it, but I guess being uh, being the self-appointed Guardians of the Universe, they would make it a point to know about the uh, the conflict between Earth and Thanagar, and would, could therefore infer how it would have affected uh, John Stewart on a personal level, I suppose. So here we get a bunch of you know, there's Aresia and Salak, and there's, there's Tomar Ray, and a second ago we saw Kilowog and Kat Matui, and a bunch of others. But uh, and and Kyle Rayner, obviously, uh, the first time he's appeared since. Um, since in Brightest Day, back in Superman the Animated Series, has been made reference to uh, a few times, like in uh, Hearts and Minds, when Cat Matui mentioned that uh, John Stewart had sent him to be trained by her, but it's the first time we actually see him since then, and uh, he comes complete with uh, his actual hair color, unlike in Brightest Day when he had brown hair, uh, here he has black hair like he does in the comics, and he has a different voice actor. In, in Brightest Day it was uh, Michael P. Greco, whereas here it's uh, Will Friedle, best known, of course, as Terry McGinnis from Batman Beyond. And he also is sporting a new costume, uh, basically a streamlined version of the uh, Jim Lee-designed costume from Green Lantern number 150 uh, a few years ago. And uh, actually, all the Green Lanterns are sporting redesigned costumes, as they mentioned on the official commentary. And uh, the only possible explanation I can uh, think as to why that might be is that Kyle, being an artist, perhaps took it upon himself to give himself a new costume, and uh, it sort of caught on, and he ended up designing costumes for the rest of the Corps, which is no small task, considering there are either 3,600 or 7,200 of them, depending on whether you go by uh, pre-Emerald Twilight or post-Rebirth. What are the odds that O would be directly between wherever Amazo was and Earth, but whatever. So this is the really the first episode where we see the expanded League all go into action together. And, uh... Oh, there's ice flying in. That's a little strange. I didn't know she could fly. But, um, of course, when they started the series, they thought it was going to be basically an anthology series, and they thought that uh, each episode would be one of the returning members going off on a mission with a few uh, new characters. They didn't think they'd ever have occasion to have an episode where they'd have dozens of heroes, or in in this case, maybe like 10 or 15 heroes, all, um, all facing one giant threat together, but uh, when they decided to 
bring Amazo back, they figured it would be as good a time as any to uh, to try that out, given that the threat would warrant uh, such a, a large force to defend Earth from Amazo. So here we get Luther's uh, power vest. Now, back in Season 2, um, because of course they introduced that he needed that vest to live back in Injustice for All in Season 1, but then when he appeared in Season 2, even though he had the, his power armor in A Better World, it wasn't mentioned in Hereafter. And some people thought that, not that they necessarily forgot that he had that illness, but they maybe had decided to kind of sweep it under the rug uh, and not really worry about the fact that he was supposed to be dying because they thought perhaps it might uh, it might limit their future story options. But here it, it became obvious that they hadn't decided to do that and that they were going to make it a, a big part of Luther's uh, story from here on out, as of course it ended up being. And I liked that the League sent, of all the people they could have sent, they sent Supergirl and Steel, because, of course, they would know Metropolis better than uh, any of the other Leaguers except for Superman, and because they have history with Lex and would know the kind of tricks he'd be capable of and would be better uh, stand a better chance of keeping up with him if he tries to pull anything. And, of course, he does pull something, and they aren't able to keep up with him, but at least they put up a valiant effort. And here, Steele makes a somewhat odd crack about Luthor being bald, which is kind of strange when you remember back in Superman that, of course, Steele is bald as well. Uh, I think in his case, he might actually shave his head as opposed to Luthor, who's, you know, bald from a very young age, but still, nonetheless, a bit of an odd crack. And as they mention in the official commentary, this is Phil Lamar uh, doing Steele. Uh, back in Superman the Animated Series, it was Michael Dorn, uh, of course, who who also plays Calabac and is best known as Worf from Star Trek The Next Generation. And the only reason they said that they didn't have Michael Dorn come back and uh, reprise his role as Steel was purely budgetary. Um, it doesn't come up too often, but basically they have a ceiling on the number of actors they can have in any given episode, and the ceiling is basically 12 or 13. Um, it sounds kind of strange to... Uh, to say that, because when you think of live-action TV shows, you think of shows that often have seven or eight regulars, and oftentimes dozens of uh, background or minor characters in both speaking and non-speaking roles. So it, it sort of sounds strange to us to hear that they can only have 12 or 13 people for an episode, but um, that's that's just the way the uh, the budget breaks down. And so when it came down to this episode, they probably said, well, we can either get... Michael Doran back as Steel, or we can uh, have John C. McGinley as the Atom, or Oded Fair as Dr. Fade, or, or whatever. And uh, of all the secondary leaguers that have speaking roles in this episode, his part is really the least important, and so I, I kind of got to agree with their decision there. The Atom. Here we go, the Atom. I love the Atom. Because, um, of course, I, being a scientist myself, I feel some affinity towards him. Um, but yeah, so a few things to say about the Atom. First of all, he's got a cool little theme. It's kind of blink and you'll miss it, but you hear it for a second as he's enlarging there, and you hear the same uh, little motif as he enlarges up out of the Petri dish in uh, Dark Heart, his Spotlight episode, a couple of episodes from now. He's voiced by, of course, John C. McGinley, uh, best known from Scrubs. Um, John C. McGinley actually... uh, this is not the first time he's done a voice for the series. He actually did the 
uh, TV station owner guy type person back in uh, Wild Cards that Batman barged in on at the beginning. Just to, as an aside, I love John's pose here in a second, right there, with his head kind of cocked to one side and fiddling with his ring. He's just supremely confident, kind of bring it on kind of look. And just the, the pose, the poses here and the staging of this little sequence as they're waiting is just so... Uh, so grandiose and majestic. You just do not expect to see stuff like this uh, on TV every day. And Superman's spacesuit there, I like the fact that, unlike the suit he wore back in Superman the Animated Series, part of his face is exposed. Uh, of course, he's got the mask over his mouth so he can breathe, but part of his face is exposed. And that uh, proves that and he, he took some criticism back in Superman the Animated Series from the fans, was saying, well, he's so weak in this version, he can't even fly around in space without a spacesuit. But this shows that it's not to protect his, his skin from the vacuum, but rather just to allow him to breathe and to provide him with some measure of propulsion. So it, it, it's not a question of invulnerability. This version of Superman just needs to be able to breathe. But yeah, so uh, John C. McGinley was, was uh, way back in wild cards there, and they brought him back for this. And uh, I've always felt that he was actually a little stiff in this episode. Um, it goes back to what I was saying in the, in the commentary for A Maid of Honor, uh, where when you get a character, and, and as I, I was referring there to Wonder Woman, how, how when you get a character who's sort of regal and aristocratic, it's easy for the actor to sort of fall into the trap of, of coming off kind of stiff. And here I think it's the same with the Adam, where he's very uh, intelligent and clinical, and uh, and I think John C. McGinley sort of falls into the same trap, trying to make him sound too uh, too intellectual and detached. He uh, he loosens up quite a bit in uh, in Dark Heart and does a much better job. He gets a bit more to play there. He gets to play the Adams, um, you know, his sort of frustrated side and his quirky side and a little bit of humor and comes off uh, altogether much better. But I I always thought this was not a particularly great debut for the Adam for that reason, but still love the character. And John C. McGinley is excellent in the role, just a little rough in this episode, I feel. And I also kind of like that the Adam seems to have kind of a rapport with Luthor here. He puts his hand on his shoulder right there. And, uh, I mean, I guess it's because they're both scientists, I guess is really the only reason. It's kind of the only thing they have in common. They're two of the smartest people on the show, and perhaps in the world, certainly, but... Uh, it's a nice little touch. It doesn't make a great deal of sense, but and here when Amazo, what Amazo hears uh, Clancy Brown saying something about Heisenberg compensators, that's a bit from Star Trek. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. But what uh, what I love here about the scene coming up is when Supergirl flies up to uh, to intercept Amazo. There's this look of fear on her face. And it's not like, oh my god, I'm going to die, but it's sort of, can I do this? Is is this, you know, right there? Is this something I'm capable of? But then she just grits her teeth and goes for it, and it's a great little bit of characterization. I love that effect. And the effects uh, animation in this episode is fantastic. There's a little bit of motion blur on Supergirl there. There's a little motion blur on camera shake as Rocket Red flies past fire right there. And even fire, the flames coming off of fire... Um, it's not just the animation on the fire itself. There's kind of a haze around it. I don't know how they do that. And the explosions there 
are just so lush. I mean, I know it sounds like I'm gushing over minor things, but when you have a superhero show, the the pretty eye candy is. I mean, not to sell the short, the story or the acting short, but if the visuals aren't impressive, you really lose a huge part of the equation. And this episode just has some amazing visuals. But yeah, so the the Heisenberg compensators go back to uh, to Star Trek, and what they're really ultimately a reference to is uh, the actual theory in quantum mechanics called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, uh, which holds that you can't measure a particle's position or its momentum simultaneously without changing one variable or the other by measuring it. So basically that's that's a, a real-life barrier in the way of coming up with any sort of real-world teleportation technology. And so in Star Trek... When they had teleporters, they invented these fictional Heisenberg compensators to sort of say to the more scientifically-minded fans, you know, we know that this wouldn't work in real life because of this principle, but here's this thing we're saying we invented to to allow it to work. And they, they use the same terminology here. So i got to wonder if Dwayne McDuffie is maybe a bit of a Star Trek fan. I'm not sure it's possible to be a bit of a Star Trek fan, but you know what I mean. Ice has got his number. She's twirling her hands around. And a second ago, uh, Amazo destroyed Red Tornado. And I gotta say, I love the irony of Red Tornado being the only leaguer that Amazo actually kills. Because when you think about it, he actually goes quite a bit out of his way to avoid killing people. Really, ultimately, it would have been faster for him to destroy Oa, just tear right through it, than would be to go to the trouble of moving it to another dimension. You don't get the sense that it was a big effort for him to move it to another dimension, but still, it would have been easier to go right through it. And here, surely it would have been easier for him to kill these leaguers rather than, say, choke fire and throw her off into the distance. Wouldn't it be easier just to, you know, incinerate her instantly? Or teleport her into the sun or whatever? So you kind of get the feeling that despite his, you know, all the all the talk he has about becoming a god and so on, he, he does seem to have some respect for life except for Red Tornadoes. And Red Tornado is, of course, an android like him. So it's an interesting commentary on Amazo's state of mind and his opinion of himself if he considers an android life to be the only disposable form of life. What does he really think about himself as an android if that's, if that's, his, uh, if that's his belief system? So it, it sort of sets Amazo up in a, in a very subtle way as being very unstable and, and perhaps more than a little uh, self-loathing and self-destructive. And that vulnerability is what... Luthor is able to tap into at the end of the episode. Yeah, it's not going to work, guys. Robert Picardo, I haven't really said anything about him. Uh, Robert Picardo plays Amazo, and, and he's done a number of voices in the DCAU. He was Blackhawk, uh, the leader of the Blackhawk Squadron back in the Savage Time. And uh, he's done voices going all the way back to... Oh, great use of the Green Lantern theme here. Very haunting and majestic. Um, he's done voices going all the way back to Batman the Animated Series when he played a, a gangster in The Man Who Killed Batman. And he might have done other incidental voices along the way, I'm not sure. But I, I know he played Blackhawk, and of course he's fantastic as Amazo here. Uh, best known to modern audiences and, and sci-fi fans as the Doctor, the holographic Doctor from uh, Star Trek Voyager. 
but uh, and and so obviously no small amount of coincidence that uh, he plays another quote unquote robotic character here but um but he's fantastic and and actually this this little bit here I, I should talk about when uh, Kyle and the other Green Lanterns and uh, basically even John really complicit uh, in it everybody but Dr. Fate is basically saying we should destroy half the earth uh, in order to stop Amazo and that actually uh, garnered a lot of criticism on the internet people were saying wait a minute um, even if Luthor were the best human being on the planet which obviously he isn't and the Justice League knows he isn't but even if he were would it, it would it really be worth destroying half the human race and half the earth just to save him and that i feel is is missing the point because they're not i mean they're concerned for the sanctity of life so they they try to save luthor anyway but they're not concerned about him primarily they're concerned about the fact that for all they know and they're quite reasonable in thinking so amazo just destroyed oa and killed at the very least dozens if not hundreds or thousands of green lanterns and however, who knows how many Guardians, plus any other life forms that might have been on Oa. For all they know, he might have destroyed countless other planets that were in his way. And they know he has the power of a god. He just killed Red Tornado. And obviously, he, they can rebuild him. But still, he's, he's a life form. He's, he's one of them. Who knows how many more people he's willing to kill. And they'd be quite logical in, in assuming that he, Amazo would be willing to destroy the entire Earth if, if something cheeses him off enough. So that being the case, it's what Kyle says, you know, half a planet's better than none. And I I, I wouldn't buy, say, Su Superman having that state of mind and being willing to make that kind of sacrifice, but Green Lanterns need to think on a different level. I mean, they're concerned about their individual sectors, which might have hundreds of inhabited planets, and as a whole, as the core, are concerned with the well-being of the entire known universe. So half of one planet, a relatively backwater planet with, you know, without even capacity for intergalactic travel like Earth, is probably a small price to pay to sacrifice in order to preserve the, uh, the greater safety of the universe. And Amazo is basically getting to the point where he could probably threaten the entire universe. So it's, it's no small threat. So I, I completely buy their, uh, their attitude here. John took a bit of convincing, of course, because he's human, and so is Kyle, but Kyle spent years away from Earth and probably thinks more like a Green Lantern now than a, than a civilian human. The, such a great uh, exchange coming up here between uh, Luthor and uh, Amazo. So, uh, so wonderfully acted by Clancy Brown and Robert Picardo, of course, with that goes without saying they're they're two of the best uh actors that have been on the show but um what i what i also love about this is is obviously it sets up luthor's uh character arc for the rest of the show his desire for uh ultimate knowledge his desire for immortality and godhood uh, which obviously sets up his desire to to actually bring those things to fruition by uh, by building himself an amazo body in uh, panic in the sky and ultimately, uh, the way that he achieves those things by uh, attaining the anti-life equation and basically achieving ultimate knowledge and godhood, but then ironically choosing to, what, what does he do with those gifts once he finally attains them? Is he content in his godhood? 
well, perhaps in some way, but what he actually chooses to do with them is sacrifice himself to end the threat of Darkseid. So it, it really sets up uh, everything from here to Destroyer uh, quite beautifully. And also, like they say in the official commentary, Luthor can't really lie to Amazo, because Amazo has picked up telepathy on the, along the way. He's got to tell him the truth. And someone like Luthor doesn't tell the truth a lot, at least in his public persona, unless he's, you know, in a back room telling, leaning over someone conspiratorially and saying, if you don't do this, I'll kill you and your family. That he's good at telling the truth about. But he's not really good at telling the truth out loud about his his motivations and his view on the world. But that aside, I, I've always felt that Luthor was one of the most self-actualized characters in the show, even though he he's very private about his motivations, obviously, because if he weren't, he'd be thrown in jail. Um, he doesn't deceive himself about what he's after or why he's after it. He's very honest with himself and very true to himself. Uh, unlike someone, to, and this is probably going to get me some flack, but unlike someone like, say, Batman, who has a goal, obviously, in mind, uh, but leaves a lot of debris in, the, in, in his path, uh, lost loves and, and you know jilted women and embittered sidekicks and things like that uh, because of the way he leads them on in, in one way or another. Luthor is very honest about his goals and um, and doesn't really try to try to live up to any noble ideal except to uh, to make his own situation better. So I've always felt that uh, that was a nice moment for Luthor there where he's able to to expound his beliefs without uh, without being condemned for them and uh, and give us a bit of insight into his character. I love the little bit of Egyptian-style music there as Dr. Fade talks about his, his purpose and so on. And this scene here at the end, as soon as I saw the staging of this scene, as soon as Dr. Fade comes in, I don't know why, I think it was just the camera angles and so on, the fact that we were only being shown like one half of the room, but I knew something was about to happen. I knew something or someone was going to be in that other half of that room, and it was going to be a big surprise. And of course I was right, it was Shaira. But uh, the other interesting thing is because of the, the way the shots are staged, and I'll point them out here in a second, um, when Shaira comes in right here, uh, you can only see her from like the, the waist down there, and then here you can only see her from the shoulders up. And she's wearing dark clothing, you can't really see her midsection. And some people actually thought uh, she was pregnant. They thought that she had uh, conceived a child with Jon Stewart back around the time period of Starcross, and that that was going to be the big deal when she came back. But Because uh, you couldn't really see her midsection very well there. But of course, that's probably quite beyond what they'd be allowed to do, even if they wanted to. But people love to imagine that they're going to push the envelope even farther than they ever could. So that was that was a prevalent theory at the time, as I recall. All right, that's The Return. Thanks for listening.